So now we come to the Maccabean period and in uh, the whole and the entire situation that is associated with it, the lead up into what certainly is one of the more significant uh, events of Jewish history. After Alexander died, he died at 33, there really were no successors in place that were a part of his family. So what happened was is that there was a group of generals who were to share power. These are known as the Diadoche, or the successors. And we're dealing here with the period from 336 to 301. Uh, Alexander had conquered much of the known world, extending as far as I noted as India. Uh, when he got to India, his soldiers basically told him they had had enough. And uh, so they returned back home. The relationship to Jews was a relationship of respect but cultural encroachment. And the passage that we read for you, read for you from Antiquities reflects the idea of respect. But also, um, but also during this time, the fact that Alexander's empire covered Egypt on the one hand, and we're going to find out about the Ptolemies who ruled there, and Syria on the other, we're going to find out about the Seleucids who ruled there, with Israel caught in the middle on the border between two, of the, two parts of Alexander's former kingdom, this led to cultural chaos because Israel basically became a pawn and a battleground between Egypt and Syria over the next 150 years. Greek culture spread into Palestine. The religion of the Greeks is highly syncretistic. They simply absorb gods. So if Egypt has a god or Syria has a god, they just add it to the pantheon. Um, divine veneration of the ruler begins to emerge. Rulers begin to be called sons of God during this time. And Alexander's generals share rule in 20 satrapies. These are kind of governmental districts under three successive regents. And there's all kinds of power grabbing that takes place between 323 and 301. And Palestine, or Israel, in the next 150 years will change hands six times between Syria and Egypt. That's how buffered it is in this battle. There is a fourfold alliance that emerges in the power struggle in the 20 so odd years after Alexander's death. And this fourfold alliance emerges in 301 as a result of a battle in a little, uh, in, in a corner of uh, Alexander's empire uh, called Ipsus. Ptolemy I has control of Egypt. Seleucus I has control of Syria. Those are going to be the two most important regions for the history of Israel. Lysimachus is in control of Thrace, which is in the region of Greece, and Antipater and his son Cassander have the uh, power over Macedonia. So those are the four divisions that come out of the struggle for power in the 20 some odd years, 22 years after Alexander's death. Here's how 1st Maccabees describes, 1st Maccabees is a work of the of what is, what is often called the Apocrypha, 
but really is a second temple Jewish historical work uh, from between the period of the Testaments. And 1 Maccabees is another key source for the events that we are going to describe. And it starts off with Alexander. This is the very beginning of the book. After Alexander, son of Philip the Macedonian, who came from the land of Katim, had defeated King Darius of the Persians and the Medes, he succeeded him as king. He had previously become king of Greece. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth. Notice that expression, which is going to be an idiom in some of the stuff that we're going to be reading over the next uh, few weeks. And plundered many nations. And when the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. He gathered a very strong army, ruled over countries, nations, and princes, and they became tributary to him. After this, he fell sick and perceived that he was dying, so he summoned his most honored officers who had been brought up with him from youth and divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. That's the initial transition of power to the Diadochi. Now, in this period, running from 300 to the Maccabean War, the Maccabean War starts in 167, there is this, this back and forth that Israel goes through with uh, Egypt and Syria. Egypt starts off in control. Basically, Israel was under the rule of the Ptolemy family, And there were six wars between Syria and the Seleucids, which is the kingdom of the north in the book of Daniel, Daniel 11. And Egypt, the Ptolemies, who represented the south, six wars in a period of just slightly over 100 years, starting in 274 and running down to 168. So that's a lot of conflict back and forth. And unfortunately, Israel is right smack in the middle of these two kingdoms. Palestine becomes a pawn or a buffer between Egypt and Syria for almost two centuries. And the high priest really ran the country alongside the Ptolemies in Egypt, at least as long as Egypt was running things. And we're going to see that the political role of the high priest is going to become crucial as we move into the Maccabean period and then also as we move in, into, into the rule of the Maccabees, also known as the Hasmoneans, uh, in the period after the Maccabean War. The high priest then is not merely a religious leader, but he has political power and political overtones. There are political overtones to his rule. In Alexandria, in Egypt, uh, the beginnings of a new translation of the Hebrew Scriptures is started in a work that becomes known as the LXX, or the Septuagint. The number 70 or 72 being associated with the traditions of how this was translated originally, and another intertestamental work known as the Letter of Aristius, presents the story of the initial 
um, translation of the Torah. And we're going to take a look at that in just a second. Josephus also relates basically the same, uh, the same story that the letter of Aristius has. Synagogue, the synagogue and the Sanhedrin, or elders' council, also develops during this period as Jews have to develop a form of local rule. Remember, Jews have been dispersed. Uh, they aren't simply in Judea. We have some in Babylon. We have some in Egypt. They're scattered across the Middle East. And so there are these local councils, or Sanhedrin, that develop to help uh, oversee the affairs of Jewish people. And the synagogue becomes the center of Jewish community in many of these locations. Again, the temple is rebuilt and is functioning, but if you are a diaspora Jew a long way away from Jerusalem, there's no central location around which to gather to have sacrifices, so what becomes the alternative? Well, what happens is, is that there becomes a house of prayer and a house of, uh, of instruction and a community center, all of which together form the basis for establishing uh, synagogues. There is some effort on the part of some to promote good relations between the Jews and the Gentiles. And in fact, part of the theme of the letter of Aristius that I told you about is that the Jews and the Gentiles are able to get along. That they, there doesn't have to be hostility between them. There is peaceful Hellenization as long as taxes are paid and there is no rebellion and the Ptolemies, the Egyptian kings, are happy. Okay, so as long as there's peace, everything is rocking along nicely in this situation. Now here's the letter of Aristius telling the story of how the translation from Hebrew into Greek of the Torah took place. Three days later, Demetrius took the men passing along the seawall, seven stadia long, to the island and crossed the bridge and made for the northern districts of Pharos. There he assembled them in a house which had been built upon the seashore of great beauty in a secluded situation. See, the Septuagint was translated during a religious retreat. <laughs> and invited them to carry out the work of translation since everything that they needed for the purpose was placed at their disposal. So they set to work comparing their several results and making them agree and whatever they agreed upon was suitably copied out under the direction of Demetrius, and the session lasted until the ninth hour. After this, they were set free to minister to their physical needs. So they worked hard and translated all day. Everything they wanted was furnished for them on a lavish scale. This uh, translation had been ordered, according to the letter, by the king of the Ptolemies, who was in the process of building a huge library in Alexandria to collect all the great books of the world. And so that's why uh, they're undertaking uh, this process. Alexandria was one of the key locations where dispersed Jews ended up. Uh, in the time of the New Testament, the city is divided into five districts. One district in Alexandria is completely Jewish, and a second district in Alexandria is mostly Jewish. So the Jewish population of the city was somewhere around 33 to 40% of the total. Now just to give you an idea of scale, 
The estimates are that Jews comprised about 7% of the population of the Roman Empire. So that tells you how Jewish Alexandria was. Anyway, everything they wanted was furnished for them on a lavish scale. In addition to this, Dorotheus made the same preparations for them daily as were made for the king himself, for thus he had been commanded by the king. In the early morning they appeared daily at the court, and after saluting the king went back to their own place, and as is the custom of all Jews, they washed their hands in the sea, prayed to God, and then devoted themselves to reading and translating the particular passage on which they were engaged. Sounds like seminary, doesn't it? And I put the question to them, why is it that they washed their hands before they prayed? And they explained it was a token that they had done no evil, for every form of activity is wrought by means of the hands. Since in their noble and holy way, they regard everything as a symbol of righteousness and truth. You begin to see the flavor of what religious purity is all about in the thinking of the Jewish people. The text goes on. As I have already said, they met together daily in the place which was delightful for its quiet and its brightness and applied themselves to their task. And so it chanced that the work of translation was completed in 72 days, just as if it had been, this had been arranged of set purpose. When the work was completed, Demetrius collected together the Jewish population in the place where the translation had been made and read it over to all in the presence of the translators who met with great reception also from the people because of the great benefits which they had conferred on them. So you can see that the feel of this is that this is a significant event, a wonderful translation. They bestowed warm praise upon Demetrius, too, and urged him to have the whole law transcribed and to present a copy to their leaders. After the books had been read, the priests and the elders of the translators and the Jewish community and the leaders of the people stood up and said that since so excellent and sacred and accurate a translation had been made, it was only right that it should remain as it was and no alteration should be made in it. And when the whole company expressed their approval, they bade them pronounce a curse in accordance with their custom upon any who should make any alteration, either by adding anything or changing in any way, whatever, any of the words which had been written or by making any omission. This was a very wise precaution to ensure that the book might be preserved for all future time unchanged. Now, the reason this text is so important is you can get a feel for how the Septuagint is viewed within Judaism before we ever get to the time of Jesus. And the reason this becomes important is because by the time we get to the New Testament, uh, the Septuagint is a widely used translation, and in fact, many of the translations that we have in our New Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures reflect Septuagintal readings vis-a-vis -vis the Masoretic text. So it's important to understand the translation background and translation history of this text as we think about it. And let me stop and see if there are any questions. Yeah. Yeah, there's a part of this that I didn't cite for you that basically says there's a part of this legend associated with this that the translators separately went into their rooms, translated the text, and when they came out and compared the translations, they all matched. Okay? Now, anyone who's done a Greek 101 or 102 class would know how amazing that is. <laughs> all right? So, uh, yeah. So in 72 days, each person translated... Was it a major piece of the Old Testament, or was it the entire? We don't have a schedule of how fast they proceeded, but just think about how long the Pentateuch is and ask yourself, 
how fast you're moving to do that in 72 days. So it's, uh, you're covering several chapters a day. Yeah, Rob. Seeing kind of the, the multifaceted makeup of Judaism in the period, based on one thing that was said, the salute of the king, um, would these translators have been uh, completely acceptable to Orthodox Jews in, in terms of what they're doing with, with the Hebrew Scripture? Well, the issue of translating the Hebrew Scripture becomes a necessity, okay, because some people only know Greek. That's why you do it. So they, they're no longer learning Hebrew. In some cases, in other parts of the world, they're only learning Aramaic. That's why you have the Targums developing uh, slightly after this time as we move from Hebrew to Aramaic as well. What was important to Jewish people was that people knew the contents of the book. And so to do it in translation is not necessarily seen as a problem. And the fact that so many translators are put into the process, into the mix, is a way of trying to guarantee the quality of the translation. Okay? Mm -hmm. Is Aristius, is he a Jew or is he a Jew or is he a Greek? This is an explanation of Jewish practice uh, in a Greek context, basically. So uh, the letter to Aristius is written to explain to him, uh, to explain to him because he wouldn't be familiar with the customs, uh, what is going on and why this is seen as such a positive thing. And the thrust of this letter as a whole is the idea that uh, Jews and Greeks are able to get along. We're going to see other works that don't have this generous spirit attached to them. Okay? Yes? Did you say exactly how many people helped in um, Well, the tradition is, is that it was, it was 70 or 72. It's debated. 72 days... 70 translators is the way it's normally put together. Mm -hmm. Going back to the, uh, the conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, what was so desirable about the southern <coughs> Palestine area? Well, it basically gave you access to everything to the east. Think about the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, and think about your way into the Middle East if you're coming from Europe. Okay, or you're coming from northern, northwest, uh, northwest Asia. Okay, it's a way in to key parts of the Middle East and then across over into India. So it's, it's, it's uh, topographically, politically, and strategically significant.